This morning, we are kicking off our summer-long teaching series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is often a forgotten reality in the Christian faith, or just simply uh, an assumed sort of belief that is kind of kept at arm's length. And we believe that the Holy Spirit is critical for us, not only in the greater story of God, but in living the kind of life that God calls us to. And so as we've thought about being an Antioch kind of church that is empowered by the Spirit, uh, we wanted to take this summer and really just kind of do a a big uh, overarching study on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So the first couple of weeks are really going to be laying groundwork, a little more theological, uh, talking about the role of the Holy Spirit uh, in the Godhead and Next week, talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in relationship to Jesus and why Jesus would make such a uh, strange statement that says that the Holy Spirit is actually better for you than if I was to stay here on earth, uh, and kind of examining that reality. And then the third week, talking about the Holy Spirit and us. What does it mean to be indwelt by the Spirit? What does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? And then on the basis of those three things, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about uh, the, the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives and how we're guided by the Spirit, how we can listen for the voice of the Spirit, what are spiritual gifts, what is the, the place of the supernatural in the church today, uh, and all of these things, kind of wanting to be empowered together uh, by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is a scary subject for you, I, I want to promise you that it's not going to be very scary and that it's important for us to dive into this Uh, and see that the full life comes from a life that is filled by the Spirit. And so this morning we're kicking this off really by looking at uh, the Holy Spirit in the role of the Godhead. And rather than having a singular passage for us to land in, we're going to be all over the place. And so I thought about giving you something ahead of time, and then I thought, well, oftentimes if I give you kind of a cheat sheet ahead of time, then your eyes are on the cheat sheet. But I I want you to listen to the story that I have to tell this morning. And so the cheat sheet is coming via email either tomorrow or the day after. So don't feel you've got to quick scribble down all these scripture references or land in all these different places. I'm going to give you something that you can go back at and look through and kind of wrestle in. What I want you to do this morning is just kind of nestle in and let's take this journey together And kind of hear how the Spirit is central to the greater story that God is telling and is unveiling in our world. Uh, And that's what we want to do. So really to do that, we've got to start out with a huge mystery in the Christian faith. And that is the reality of the Trinity. And the doctrine of the Trinity really says that God is one essence, one usia, but exists in three natures or three persons. Uh, if that's a better way for you to understand. And this formulation really came out of all kinds of different debates over who was God and how did God exist? And was God one? Was God more? Was Jesus God? Is the Holy Spirit God? At the Council of Nicaea, the Christian church, through the move of the Spirit, uh, said that Orthodox Christian faith believes that God is one, one essence, but exists in three persons, three natures. That is God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit that all three form God, three natures, one essence. So uh, we look to Scripture, and we see this reality play itself out all the way through Scripture. That is that God is one. The great statement in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that is called the Shema. Shema means hear. 
in Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Yehovah Elohim, Yehovah Echad, one, Echad. God is one. This is the creed sort of of Jewish faith. And it's the creed that Jesus himself would have uttered. God is one. But we also see in the opening chapters of Scripture, when God is creating the world, and when God is about to create humanity, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, he says, let us create man in our image. And so already from the beginning of Scripture, we see the plurality of God himself, even though God is one. It's this great mystery of the Trinity. And we look to Jesus, and we see that Jesus affirms this very reality. We know that he sees the Father as God because he speaks to him in that way constantly. But he also sees himself as God because he makes the statement uh, to the people who are following him, who are saying, who are you in relation to Abraham? He says, before Abraham was, I am. And the I am, of course, is the great name that God gave himself to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus is declaring his divinity, let alone the fact that he is constantly forgiving sins. And all the people are saying, only God can forgive sins, and he just keeps forgiving sins. Jesus understands that he is God. And then when he's telling his followers that the Holy Spirit is going to come after him, he says, one is coming who is like me. And we see in that Jesus declaring the Holy Spirit, too, is like him, is divine. So we see in Jesus this a Jewish uh, monotheistic God is one faith, but also the understanding that God exists in three natures, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, how does this all relate? How do they relate together? And I think the most helpful way, although there are, are all kinds of sort of analogies that have been given that kind of all fall short or make it more confusing, uh, the early church fathers, especially the early Greek church fathers, came up with this term, which they used to describe the Trinity. It was called the perichoresis. The perichoresis. Now, uh, in Greek, perichoresis means to dance around. The, the preposition peri means around, and choresis, to dance. We get our English word choreography from it. So it's this idea that, that the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are dancing around each other, and in that reality comes the full essence of who God is. Now, this is not some sort of um, ballet performance or something like that. This is sort of an ancient way of describing an intimate kind of fellowship, where these three persons are distinct, but are really known in their relationship to each other, in that in their individuality, their fullness is given to glorifying the other aspects of who God is. It's why all the time Jesus is saying, I have brought glory to the Father, And he's saying to the Father, Father, will you glorify me? And he says, when the Spirit comes, he will glorify me. And he speaks about the Spirit in a glorifying way. So all of these uh, natures are persons of God bringing glory to each other and therefore the higher reality of glorifying God. So I've answered all your questions about the Trinity. Probably not, but we're moving on. Uh, There's lots of good stuff for you to wrestle through, and I'll give you some some, uh, places you can, can read more about the Trinity. Just know that it is a mystery. It is something that we will not fully comprehend uh, in our earthly lifetime. But it is a beautiful mystery. It makes God that much more beautiful and that much more real and that much more engaging.
So as we, we turn a little bit away from the Trinity and we begin to think about the person of the Holy Spirit and who he is, uh, we really have to answer two kind of questions because what we've just said is the Holy Spirit is God, but the Holy Spirit is the distinct person in the Godhead. So let's talk in both of these ways. The first way is that the Holy Spirit is divine. The Holy Spirit is God. And we see that in in several different ways throughout Scripture. We see it in the names that the Holy Spirit is given. Paul says of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that he is the Spirit of the Lord. In other places, he's called the Spirit of Christ. The names that are given to the Spirit are divine names. And also throughout Scripture, the Spirit is given attributes, or said there are said to be attributes of the Spirit that are in and of themselves divine. They make him God. For instance, in Psalm 139, the very famous psalm, where can I go from your Spirit? Right? It speaks about the, the omnipresence of the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is everywhere. I can't get away from the Holy Spirit. This is an attribute that only belongs to God. In Isaiah chapter 40, we see uh, that the Spirit is omniscient. Uh, In that passage, the the prophet is saying, what can you say to the Spirit that the Spirit doesn't know? The Spirit knows all things. We see in his attributes that he is God. And then we see in his activity, right, or his actions that he is God. Because the Spirit is given claim to certain activities like creating the universe. The Spirit is present in creation, and other passages, we'll speak about it in a minute, speak to distinct aspects of creation that the Spirit is involved in. This is an act of God that the Holy Spirit is a part of. And it's not just creation, it's also uh, the bringing about of Scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says that, Uh, Those, the men who wrote Scripture, were carried along by the Spirit. They were inspired by the Spirit. It was the Spirit who brought about the Scriptures that we have today to read and know about who God is. These are divine acts. These are God acts. And so the Holy Spirit, in His name, in His attributes, and in His acts, amongst other things, this is a quick, quick survey, we can see that He is God. In the same way that the Father is God, or that Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But the Holy Spirit is also a person. And don't think of it like a human being. Think about it as a nature, a person, someone with a personality. That is, someone who can be related to. Or think about it in the negative aspect. The Holy Spirit is not a force. right? The Holy Spirit is not sort of this crazy power that exists out there that maybe we can tap into. I uh, am not a Star Wars guy. I'm not an anti-Star Wars guy. I just kind of never got on the bandwagon and never saw the reason to jump on after the fact. The Holy Spirit is not akin to the force in Star Wars, right? It's not this power that you can tap into that makes it better. The Holy Spirit is a person, who desires in the same way as the Father and the Son, Jesus, to have a dynamic relationship with us. Is there power in the Holy Spirit? Tons. Is the Holy Spirit a power? No. He's a person to be related to, to be in relationship with. It's why in Romans chapter 8, Paul says the Holy Spirit intervenes for us. It's a relational 
uh, a relationship that we have with him. And, and really in terms of personality, uh, we think in terms of three ways, right? Intelligence, emotion, and will. These three kind of categories define personality. Uh, and we see all these three things in the life and the ministry of the Spirit. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that the Spirit has a mind. He has an intellect. He thinks, in, in Romans chapter 8, it says the Father knows the mind of the Spirit. Again, this dynamic statement of divinity, but also the intelligence of the Spirit. We know that the Spirit has emotion because in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, the Holy Spirit is a person who can be grieved. We can pain the emotions of the Spirit. And we know the Spirit has a will because we see the Spirit moving according to His own will all the time. But it's very distinctly noted in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the spiritual gifts that followers of Jesus receive are done according to the will of the Holy Spirit, according to His judgment, according to His order, and for the bigger purpose of the move of the kingdom of God. And so, in the Spirit, we see a person, a nature, with his own intellect, with his own emotion, with his own will. The Holy Spirit is not a force. Sometimes we have to catch ourselves from referring to the Spirit as it, right? The Spirit is given a masculine pronoun in the Scripture because he is a person. He's not a force. He's not a power. God, person. So the mystery continues, right? The mystery continues. So now we have to turn and ask ourselves, and here's where I really want you to jump into the bigger story of who the Holy Spirit is and what he's doing in the greater story of God. To ask ourselves, who who is this Holy Spirit, and and now what is he or has he been doing? So, if you think in terms of the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit moving in the Old Testament. He's much more prolific, say, in the book of Acts, because the book of Acts, I, I read this this week, and I thought, this is, this is true. That if the church or the early church or whoever named the different books of the Bible had a chance to, to redo some of the names, maybe Acts would be changed. Because Acts comes from Acts of the Apostles, uh, and this person suggested it, it probably should be changed to Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the, the most important person, the central character of the book of Acts, and the forward move of the church. But the Holy Spirit is equally prolific in the Old Testament. We see the Spirit guiding the Israelites in the wilderness towards the promised land. We see really two distinct, if we can call it that way, categories of what's going on in the ministry of the Spirit in the Old Testament. First is what we'll call creation. That's a pretty basic title. The second is what we'll call redemption, and that is sort of the move to gather uh, or rescue and keep the people of God moving towards God. And this way the Spirit is kind of working through the Old Testament in these ways. So, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The Spirit was present at creation. The Spirit hovered over the waters. And this word hover is less about sort of like a helicopter hovering over an area, and less about like he was present It's more of like a sustaining word in the Hebrew language that the Spirit was sustaining all of creation as it was being unveiled and developed. That he was uh, intricately involved. He just wasn't a casual observer from on high. 
And we see this fleshed out really in other places in the Old Testament. I think Psalm 104 mentions that the Spirit is involved in the creation of animals. And in Job chapter 33, it says the Spirit is involved in the creation of humanity, of mankind, uh, and undoubtedly in the creation of all things. The Spirit is active and moving in creation. Creation is a central Holy Spirit theme. This is important as we launch into this whole summer of studying the Holy Spirit. Second reality is the Holy Spirit is a redemption uh, mover, a, a ministry of redemption, of gathering and keeping the people on the forward move of God. And so here's kind of how it would work in the Old Testament for the Spirit to move this way. The Spirit would come upon individuals, selected individuals, uh, and it would empower them to lead and oversee and call and rescue the people of God and put them back on the right path. And so we see the Spirit of God doing this in the lives of countless individuals. We see it in the life of Daniel, so much so that Nebuchadnezzar, the king who Daniel is in exile under, uh, not a follower of Yahweh God, says, it is clear to me that this man, he says, possesses the spirit of the gods, right? Because that's the life he knows. But we know it's the spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit is in Daniel. And Daniel does some incredible things, right? refuses to give in and bow down to foreign gods, survives a night alone in a lion's den, rises to prominence and leadership in a foreign land. The Spirit of God was on him. We see it in some of the lives of the judges. If you're familiar with the story of the judges, uh, it's pretty much a basic storyline in the book of Judges, and that is that Israel's hanging out with God. Things are going good. Israel decides to not follow God anymore and kind of live their own way. A foreign power comes and conquers Israel. Israel cries out to God and says, we need help. We'll follow you again. God empowers what's called a judge, sort of a leader or rescuer. And through him, gathers the Israelites, the people of God, back together. And they live according to God's way for a while until they go their own way, are conquered by a foreign power, cry out for help, and God raises up another judge. And the cycle kind of goes on and on and on and on and on. But what's central is that every time a judge is empowered, almost every single time we see this message that the Spirit comes on him. We see it in Gideon. We see it in Samson. We see it in Othniel and many others. The Spirit of God comes on or in him to provide rescue and leadership for the people of God. We see it in Numbers spoken about Joshua, who would take over for Moses as the leader of God's people. We see it in the life of King David, where it says in 1 Samuel 16, that the Spirit rushed on him and was with him from that day forward. And so the Spirit moving in individual lives for the greater purpose of the whole people of God. Do you see it? And so three ways this kind of happens an awful lot. The first way is it comes on people for the greater good of the people of God so as to speak God's word clearly to his people. Now, this often happens through prophets in the Old Testament. So a clear example is Isaiah chapter 61, where the prophet Isaiah says uh, very famously, the spirit of the Lord is on me to declare freedom to the captives, right? and wholeness to the sick, and so forth and so on. That is the Spirit of God on the prophet to speak God's truth to the people. 
It's the role of the Holy Spirit. The second thing is sort of to call the people back to holiness or to living the way of God's life or to keep the people living that way. Uh, If the message of God is often done through prophets, through the move of the Holy Spirit, this calling the people back or moving them towards holiness often is through priests, through the move of the Holy Spirit. And so in 2 Chronicles, I think it's chapter 24, this, this, uh, this beautiful statement about the priest Zechariah. He says that Zechariah, he says that the Holy Spirit clothed Zechariah. I love that language. The Holy Spirit enveloped Zechariah. And then the, the preceding, or the verses that follow after go on to say that Zechariah called the people to repentance. Called them back to the commandments of God. And called them away from forsaking God. The Holy Spirit comes on the priest to call the people back to God, to keep them living the way of God. And then the third and final way, and maybe the way we, we best know, is the Holy Spirit would come on people for guidance or for direction, for the overall leadership of the people of God. We see it in the life of Moses, we see it in the life of the judges, and we see it distinctly in the life of the kings. So when Saul is anointed king, the spirit comes on him. And when God takes away the kingship from Saul, the spirit leaves Saul. And then we read, or we said earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the spirit rushes on David. And so in all these ways, we see the spirit moving on in the lives of individual people for the greater good of the whole people of God specifically in speaking the truth of God, in calling the people to live in God's way, and in providing overall direction and leadership to God's people. We'll call this big group redemption. So, And if we kind of lose that big term, four big things that the Holy Spirit is doing in the Old Testament is creation, speaking God's truth, calling the people to holiness, and providing overall leadership for the people of God. And so as we begin to turn then in the story of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we should, I, would, I would, would offer to you, we should expect to see the Holy Spirit do these exact same things. And we first see it in the life of Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about the move of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, but it's important for us to think about it. So we see in the life of Jesus the Holy Spirit working in creation. Jesus is not a created being. He's an eternally existing being, right? There was never a time when Jesus wasn't. Jesus has always been there. But there was a time when Jesus was not incarnated, was not in the flesh, did not set aside godliness to become human. And it says, I think, really important for us to know in the first chapter of Matthew and in other gospel accounts that Mary was a virgin who became with child. And it says... That, that, that uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit is the language they give. And so in the incarnation, in the arrival of Jesus, we see the power and the move of the Spirit to bring creation once again. You see it? And then Jesus kind of goes and lives his life in quiet for a while, and some scholars think around the age of 30, perhaps. He begins his public ministry, and he begins it with being being baptized. 
And this is weird if we're thinking about this. Isn't Jesus the one who sort of should be baptizing? And John the Baptist who baptizes Jesus is saying the same thing. What do you want me to baptize you for? Well, this is an anointing moment for Jesus. This is sort of like when David is told by Samuel he's going to be king. And they pour all the oil over his head and the Spirit of God rushes on David. And David doesn't become king just that moment. The baptism of Jesus is very much this kind of imagery that's going on. And so in his baptism, he is sort of anointed with oil, as it were. And then we see this this crazy stuff start to happen. The heavens open up, remember? And there's a voice from the heavens that says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Basically saying, this is the guy right here, you know? And then the spirit descends on him. Now, if we understand everything that's happened in the Old Testament, this should make perfect sense to us. Jesus is the next in the line of the prophets and the priests and the kings. Do you see it? He's God's anointed one, empowered by the Spirit, identified by the Father for this moment to provide leadership to his people. But we know the secret. And that's that Jesus is not just the next. He's the final. He's the embodiment of it all. They're not going to also anoint a priest and also anoint a prophet. It is Jesus. Everything has been pointing to him this whole time. We see that all of Jesus' powerful miracles happen after his baptism. Why? Because they're done in the power of the Spirit. A special empowerment from the Spirit. Does this mean that Jesus couldn't have done them on his own? Well, that's for theologians to debate just what it meant for him to set aside his godliness, but he did it this way to embody the full story of God, that the Spirit of God descends upon God's selected one, empowers him to lead and to guide. And through it, we see Jesus live into all of these things. So I just want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 1. This is what it says, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he has made the universe, creation. The Son is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, there's the priestly work, he sat down at the right hand of the one who is in heaven, king. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to others. The writer to Hebrews in the first four verses of his entire letter summarizes the ministry of Jesus as prophet, priest, and the one anointed by God, empowered by the Spirit, the final fulfillment of all the ways the Spirit worked in the Old Testament, now done solely through Jesus. We see the big story of God and how it is working and how the Spirit is central to all that is going on. So then we pause and say, okay, what about us? And what I would suggest to you this morning is we have access to the Spirit of God because Jesus has access to the Spirit of God and we are in Jesus. 
as followers of Jesus, the Bible says we are in Jesus. Jesus has the Spirit. He's the final recipient of the Spirit. Right? It's no longer kind of doled out to individuals for leadership. Now it's in Jesus. But we are in Jesus. So if the Spirit is in Jesus and we are in Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, in this exact logic, then the Spirit is in us. Do you see it? And so suddenly, what was once a spirit in individuals for a time to provide leadership for the people is now the spirit in Jesus and therefore the spirit in all of us who have believed on Jesus and called him our Lord. And therefore the empowerment that was selective is now universal to the church because of our union with Jesus. The spirit that was once for the select to lead the whole is now for Jesus who has lowered himself for all of us. And we should expect the same exact things from the ministry of the spirit in us that we saw in the Old Testament, that we saw in the life of Jesus. And so what do we know? We know that in the spirit we have new life, creation, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if any person is in Christ Jesus, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed, the new is here. And Paul further explains that elsewhere, most prolifically, I think, in Ephesians chapter 1, that this move of new creation is squarely sitting on the to-do list of the Holy Spirit in us. Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14, that if anyone is in Christ, then the Spirit is in him. And this, that Spirit is the Spirit of life, he says. So he's bringing new life to us. And he says the Spirit is also the down payment or the deposit or the guarantee of future life. That is that this is why Paul can say to the Philippians that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. But it's just not a starting of new creation. It is the full promise of new creation because of the work of the Spirit in your life. Therefore, if you want the life that God promises you through Jesus, the Spirit must have full access to your life. He is the one that brings it. That's why this series is so critical. He is the one that brings new life and new creation. Jesus has opened the full door to it because of his death and resurrection. But he says, better the Spirit comes to you than that the physical Jesus is on earth. Because Jesus can be on earth at one place at one time, but the Spirit can be in the innermost parts of your heart, Jesus says in John 14, 15, and 16. Speaking truth directly to the innermost parts of your heart. This is why Jesus would say, I'm jumping to next week, but please come back. So Jesus can say, better that the Spirit would come, and I must leave for Him to come. If you're looking for life, the promise of life and the possibility of life is found in the Spirit. And the Spirit is found in Jesus. And if your life is ordered to be connected to Jesus, you will find the life of the Spirit in you. There's no equation, there's no one, two, three, there's no six steps to having a full life. 
It is, as Jesus would say, staying so connected to the vine that is Jesus that the Spirit can have His life in you. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit that comes out of it. The Spirit is the one that works all of this. For many of us, the Holy Spirit is forgotten reality. It's kind of over here. Yeah, He exists. He's some kind of crazy power we've got to tap into sometime. No! In the same way that people have preached to us, you must have a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm telling you, you must have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit if you want life. This is the Spirit and how He works in us. It brings new life to us. I love what... uh, I'm forgetting who the pastor was. Famous pastor in England, not Spurgeon, but, but Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think it's who it was. He says, I spend 50% of my time teaching my students doctrine, saying you must learn doctrine. And I spend the other 50% of my time telling them doctrine is not enough. <laughs> you need the Spirit. See it? So the Spirit is the one who brings this new life to us. And then the Spirit is the one who brings redemption to us, we see, that, we see in Scripture the Spirit moving through what theologians have called common grace, calling the world to Jesus. Uh, and we see it, kind of how it happens in all these different ways. We see it in, in, um, in countries where people are having dreams about Jesus uh, without any, any personal witness to Jesus. The move of the Spirit to draw people to Jesus. But very distinctly, and we'll jump more and more into this next week, uh, we see that the Spirit's kind of chief job, Jesus says, is to remind us of everything that Jesus ever said. Right? So, you hear me all the time tell you, you must saturate yourself in the gospel. Right? Never forget to preach the gospel to yourself. Well, what did Jesus tell you? He told you the gospel. Who is it that's going to keep telling you the gospel? It is the Holy Spirit. He says he will remind you of the things I said. So if you give the Spirit space, when you find yourself in the toughest places on earth, you will hear the voice reminding you. And you'll still have a choice of what you're going to do with it. This is not even about you remembering to do these things. It's about the Spirit doing them in you and through others the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. He says he will teach them to the inner depths of your heart. Right? So it's no longer just a cognitive thing that is rolling around in your brain. Do I believe in Jesus? Do I believe he died on the cross? Do I believe he raised? Do I believe that I am God's son or daughter? Do I believe that, that, that he loves me even though I keep screwing up? The process of brain to heart is the Spirit. He's the one that teaches these things to our heart. And so we must give Him space. We must value our relationship with Him. We must learn to listen to Him. We must learn to look for Him. We must learn to be empowered by Him. We must learn to not quench Him, to not grieve Him, because the Spirit is our access to life in Jesus and the life that God has called us to. It's what he has done from Jump Street. And we shouldn't expect him to do any different now. Now, does he work selectively? Of course he does. According to his own will, he says. He empowers us with different gifts. We'll talk about that several weeks from now. Does he do the supernatural? We believe he still can and still does. And we'll talk about that several weeks from now. Is it different in different places? Of course it is. 
But there is one central theme, and that's what I'm trying to launch us off on today. And that is that the Spirit is all about new creation and redemption. Launching in you the life that God has called you to. And empowering you to live it. And so if nothing else, my prayer this morning is that you would believe that the Spirit is a real person. Not a human being, but a person with emotion and will and intellect that wants to be in relationship with you. That you can grieve and that you can quench and that you can push out. And that you would value His work in your life. And that you would be passionate about hearing over these next several weeks all of the ways in which the Spirit wants to distinctly work in and through you to accomplish the full life God promises for you and the mission of God in our world. Can I pray with you?